Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the ongoing US 2020 election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. This weekend, I was thrilled to host a fantastic panel of guests um, in a first ever for this podcast live online event. Um, we were thrilled with um, the very engaged audience that turned up um, and some great conversations were had, including um, some hilarious stand-up comedy from uh, Eric McElroy, a really great panel conversation. Um, and of course, we played the gut check game in a special visual version of the gut check game. Um, so apologies for the very long podcast that follows, but this is the full recorded event for those who are interested in catching up on it. Um, I hope you'll enjoy it. So welcome everyone to a Democratically 2020 Thanksgiving. Um, if I can ask all of y'all to mute, uh, put yourselves on mute for the moment and hide your videos, although we will want to see your, your lovely faces later on in the session when we start to do Q&As. Um, but we'll go ahead and, and kick off. Um, Patty, hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good, thanks. Um, I think we're just, we're just going to run through a little bit of to letting these folks know what's going on, I think is the plan. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we've got a fantastic lineup for you guys uh, today. We would ask um, some little bits of housekeeping. So as uh, Karen said, if you don't mind keeping video off and um, your microphone's on mute. The only exception we would ask is when we do the comedy portion, the stand-up portion. I, I imagine it's desperately hard to do comedy just into a, a webcam and not hear anything come back. So um, for that portion, we'd ask you to turn your microphones on and encourage you to laugh loudly and from the belly upwards, I think, as, as much encouragement <laughs> as could be given to the comedy would seem to be um, a great way to go. Um, I'm going to be running uh, the Q&A portion. So I'd ask you guys... Just to make use of the chat feature, um, I'll try and pull those questions it's together. Wait, shh. <laughs> <laughs> Can you um, all put yourself on mute for the moment? Although I enjoy you, enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah, you, you are allowed off mute if what we're then accompanied by is lots of song. That's fine. Singing is <laughs> singing is encouraged. Um, but yeah, I'll be running the Q and A portion. So if you have questions for the panel. Um, and for the people that we have speaking, um, pop them into the chat function and I'll try and pull them together and funnel them through to Karen and Emma in, in some sort of order. Great. Um, and let me give you a, a let me give you all a quick heads up. So what's going to happen? We've got um, Eric McElroy is going to do some comedy. I'll introduce him in a minute. After the comedy, I've got a very quick presentation in which I download my stream of consciousness obsession about what's going on in the election and and specifically with the forthcoming Georgia election. Um, after that, we've got um, a, a little conversation, a little chat that I'll have with Emma. And then we've got a fantastic panel of uh, guests for you to to meet and chat with later on. And uh, a time allowing and if everybody, uh, if everything goes smoothly, um, we've also got a version of the gut check blank gut check game to play right at the end of the day so thank you all so much for joining it's been fantastic to to see all of you sign up um and i think without further ado i will go ahead and introduce um eric mcelroy so eric is a friend of this podcast uh has been on the podcast a couple times um and is great to talk to um he is a um stand-up comic who has appeared in all kinds of amazing places. Um, but of course, being a stand-up comic is 
not standing up these days in comedy clubs. So he's doing some amazing other stuff. Uh, he does a um, regular thing he calls comics solving problems in which he and a fellow comedian um, basically just solve your problems as I understand it. It's as simple as that. Uh, he has a um, wonderful podcast that he runs, which you all should check out called American Exchange. Um, and uh, he's just generally awesome and a great person to have around. So I'm going to bring him out now, assuming he's still in there somewhere. Eric, are you ready? I am. I'm just turning my camera back on. Let's see if I can. This is the magic of doing gigs in the Zoom era. So there we go. It. Hello. Yeah, that's the main thing. Um, thank you for that lovely introduction, Karen. Um, yeah, so for this part, if you guys do want to turn on your sound and do want to turn your cameras, that would be absolutely lovely as long as you don't have um, too much crazy background noise going on. Um, otherwise, this is just me yelling it down a camera and it is <laughs> fucking soul destroying. So um, normally on a Saturday night, you know, I'd be, I'd live in the UK, so I'd be up and down the country. Um, in the finest places in England, um, usually you know, Essex or Hull and that kind of thing, because that's the level of comedy career I'm at. Um, and so being shouted out by drunken British people. But um, it looks like we might be having gigs come back soon, but only with a substantial meal, um, which I don't quite know what that's going to do to the wonderful world of stand-up comedy. Um, but, uh, but yes, so hello. Um, it's, it's great to be with you. Um, as a as somebody who's very keen, as I'm guessing we all are on the American election, um, I know we've got a mix of people who were overseas and some people that are still in the States. I know for those of us that are expats, um, I'm imagining that one of the things that happens a lot to you is when they find out you're an American overseas, the first thing people do over the last four years is ask you about Trump. Is that pretty much what happens to most of you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, because I've been, I, I can't, I can't remember how long have you been in the UK, Karen? I think we you beat me. Oh my by god, a few I've been years. here like twenty-one years. Oh, <laughs> twenty years for me. So we came back here back in the day when it was George W. Bush that we were having to answer for. Remember those days? Do you remember people coming up to you and going like, you know, they used to blame us for like, why did you invade Iraq? And I'd be like, it was a difficult personal decision. I mean, it was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just love hummus and I wanted to get the recipe and um, Iraqi hummus is delicious. Um, so, but that, but now it's been Trump, obviously the last four years and people ask us all the time, like, why don't you just, why don't, you know, America has guns. Why don't you just shoot him? That's the problem for everything in America. And, you know, I'm not somebody who advocates for violence, but the thing is, even if that had happened, that would not have been a good solution for America because obviously everything would have just blown up if that happened because everyone has guns, right? It would have torn the country apart. And I, the thing that people don't realize when they're coming from outside of the US is it's not just the right wing that has guns. Left wing people have guns as well. You know, the difference is just that the bullets are organic. And, um, <laughs> they taste delicious. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I started thinking, cause I've lived in the UK for so long, like, you know, what would happen if someone took a shot at the prime minister in this country? And I know we've got some British people on here and I know you're not going to react to that because you're just going to go, nah. does that mean we get a bank holiday? You guys don't give a shit, which is one of the reasons why uh, I love living here. But um, I have to say, I mean, I wasn't sure if Biden was the candidate to take on Trump. I wasn't sure. Um, I think in the end, he obviously was because we know he actually won because we don't live in a fucking imaginary world. Um, he was a safe bet though, wasn't he? I guess, you know, he was to connect across the board. Uh, he could bring Republicans on board. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys were, were Bernie bros or Bernie fans. That He was never the candidate for me. Um, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. But the reason, I mean, I like a lot of his policies. I would probably go for his policies. But the problem I have is that, you know, Bernie's originally from New York and my wife is also originally from New York. 
So if Bernie Sanders had become president, every time I heard him speak, it would have sounded like my father-in-law. And they're like, what are you doing to my daughter? I couldn't, <laughs> I, couldn't I couldn't face that. But uh, I do love watching Trump whinge about losing the election on social media. I have found that very enjoyable. And um, the thing is, is that I do, I, you know, obviously talking to people here in the UK and they don't quite understand, like, I think Trump has the right to say these things. I mean, I think it is hard because I think social media is a big problem with the election and democracy, but I am very much, even though I've been gone for all this time, I'm very much a total free speech advocate, like American levels of free speech. I don't believe in the, you know, the hate speech legislation that we have in the UK. I think you have to say awful things and, and that way you can address them, you know? Um, you know, I, I, I guess, well, I guess the one thing you can't say, because you can say anything in America, uh, except that you can't do a direct incitement to violence, you know, like, so in America, you couldn't send a tweet that says, you know, I'm gonna shoot you. You couldn't send that tweet. What you could do is you could just get a gun and you could shoot that person. Um, <laughs> That, that would be perfectly a fine, that's, that's the American way. Um, but I do, because I, I just think the thing is, is that if we ban things that people can say, it doesn't stop them from thinking those things. And then if we can address like all of us at different levels have things that we hate, right? And, you know, I think, I mean, I know Karen really well. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. So I hope it'll create uh -oh. a weird vibe at the start. <laughs> I mean, I have things that I hate, you know? I mean, I hate- <laughs> I think somebody's asking if I like sausage rolls. Uh, that's not where I was going to go with it. I'm not keen on them, to be honest. Um, I don't know who that was. But actually, it's not far off from the thing that I hate. Because I've lived in the UK all this time. I hate, I hate the fact that you eat baked beans for breakfast. It's fucking disgusting. I don't know if the Americans who live in the States realize that they do that here. I don't like baked beans anyway. But they, you guys eat them with breakfast in the UK. I don't understand that. I hate that, right? I'm not supposed to be able to say that, you know? The problem I have though, is that my kids have been born and raised here. I have British children. They like to eat baked beans for breakfast. I can't stop them from doing that, but I can stop loving them. <laughs> <laughs> and I can say that because uh, I believe in free speech. But um, I have to say, I think uh, it's interesting to see how people, you know, say that Biden's now gonna make America socialist and how awful that is and everything. I mean, I. I know that's not gonna happen. And I know living in the UK all this time, I mean, one of the best things about living here is, is the NHS, which, you know, is, is, is it, it's a great system because like it allows me to work for myself. You know, it allows me to be a better capitalist because I don't have to worry about healthcare, you know, and it's, it's just incredible after 20 years of having support from the NHS. Um, you know, I've had both of my children, you know, on the NHS and um, one of my children is alive today because of the NHS, because there's no way I would have paid to have him. <laughs> always eating baked beans and it grosses me out it's disgusting um i do the first time i ever used the nhs i don't know because i know karen's in london a few how you found the nhs for the first time i remember um because i didn't know how to use it right and when i got here early on i had a day job back then and i needed to see the doctor and uh and it, i don't want to say what it was it was a personal problem let's just say that it, it stung and um <laughs> So I went into work and I asked my colleagues, like, I need to see a doctor, what do I do? And immediately the people I work with were like, well, you can't go see a doctor. And I was like, well, why not? And they're like, cause you haven't registered with the GP. Cause I didn't know I was supposed to do that because you British people don't tell nothing to nobody, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, what, what am I supposed to do? And uh, they're like, well, you have to go to the emergency room to A&E. And I'm like, I don't wanna go to A&E. It's not that kind of problem. It's, you know, it it's, you know, personal. And um, they're like, well, that's what you gotta do. And plus, you know, just being from the States, I was thinking you go to A&E, 
that's you know, the emergency room in America. If you go to there, you, you know, you're gonna have to pay a copay. That could be three or four or $5,000 for a visit to A&E. And I didn't have that kind of money. And so I was like, whatever. And then it, it, it really started to sting. And uh, I was like, all right, here we go. And so I went to the emergency room and I went up to the receptionist and she just, um, she just, I was ready to pay. I was like, whatever, I don't care anymore. And she just took my name and said, wait. I was like, that was weird. And so I waited a little while, not even that long. And uh, I saw a doctor, uh, he gave me a couple pills. He sent me on my way. I was like, there has to be more to this. So I went back to the same receptionist and I said, what do I do now? And she said, you go home. <laughs> yeah, turns out she was racist, but, uh, <laughs> but it was free. So, you know, you can't really complain. Um, yeah, I guess uh, I, I know my time is coming up here. I don't know what else to tell you guys. I think, um, I mean, I do enjoy living in the UK. I love, I love the drinking culture here. I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, you know, I miss it going to the pub and so on. The substantial meal thing is is fascinating to me because now, if you don't know, we're coming out of some levels of lockdown in the UK. But they're saying if you go to the pub, you have to eat a meal. But that's the way we drink in America. That's one thing I've never understood. Like when in America we drink a lot, but we always have a meal when we drink. You know, because that way there's food in our belly and we can just drive home. Um, it's fine. <laughs> but um, drink driving is a significant problem in America. But but here, when I came to the UK, I didn't know about the whole eating cheating thing when you start drinking, you know. And I remember uh, the first time at the pub, and I'll, I'll finish on this, Karen. Uh, I, was, I was at the pub and uh, these guys were there and uh, I knew about rounds. I knew about drinking with rounds. And, uh, and I knew, you know, you buy them and stuff, but I didn't know that there was no eating. And uh, at one point in the evening, I was like, you know, I'm starting to get, get a little bit hungry right now. And uh, one of the guys was like, oh, I got it. And I was like, you're gonna buy dinner for all of us? Like, that's how rounds work? Like, that's an expensive proposition. I don't know about that. And, uh, and he went to the bar and he came back with three packets of crisps. <laughs> and he was proud of himself. <laughs> And then he did something with those crisps that I had never seen before. Because I know how to open up a packet of crisps. You pull up in the bag, you stick your hand in, you get the crisps, right? I didn't know there was a second way where you open the packet of crisps and then you open the packet of crisps again and you turn the packet of crisps into a platter like you've made the crisps yourselves. So I miss that. I mean, now if someone did that, you'd be like, what, with COVID? You're trying to fucking kill me? Get away from me. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, I guess that's that's pretty much my time. But thanks for letting me join you guys and um, and get to do uh, comedy sitting down and not standing up. So thank you very much. Cheers. Yay! Have a quick round of applause for Eric. Oh. So thank you so much for that. That was awesome. Um, and you're totally right about the crisp thing. Like I never understood. <laughs> I, I I was so baffled by that the first time it happened to me. And. Uh, I, and, I, and now I think of it as like posh, right? Like oh, yeah. going to serve the crisps. Get some kettle crisps. Mm. Oh. <laughs> so what is a crisp, says Marcella. Marcella, bless you. <laughs> uh, a crisp is a potato chip. Got it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Potato's a meal here. Anyway, I won't go yeah, into it's that. A meal. Sorry, Karen. <laughs> no, you're totally, you're totally nailed it. That's completely correct. Um, so thanks. Thanks, Eric. Um, so wait, I think I, so I'm now going to like, in my usual fashion, I'm going to obsess at you um, and make you all listen to it while I do, because um, I have a little presentation I pulled together um, because I've been thinking a lot lately about why nothing makes any sense. Um, but you know, 
in general, it doesn't. But let's think about it in, in the context of the election, just to put some boundaries on it. Um, so bear with me a sec. There we go. Right. So what am I currently obsessing over? I am currently obsessing over. Whoa. <laughs> I am currently obsessing over why I can't get PowerPoint to work properly. No, I we assure... saw it. <laughs> you saw it. That was it. Really? Now applaud. I'll bow. We're done. <laughs> Let me just test this out. Okay. Trying again. So while Karen's doing that, I'll just buy her a moment or two. If you are having any trouble finding the chat functionality, that's down the bottom. And the only thing to bear in mind is when you um, are sending one, it'll give you the option of sending it to everyone or sending it just to one other member of the call. So I think we would encourage this to be a sort of strange text conversation that rolls down the side. So feel free to send it to everyone. But on that note, I would also say a big thank you to Rachel who messaged just me to say hello from her <laughs> and Paul. So thank you for that, Rachel. I thought that was very nice. That you, I don't know if you've gone around everyone in turn saying hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that was hello from Rachel and Paul was actually meant to be to everyone, but we incorrectly sent it. Hello but to Rachel and Paul. <laughs> it made me feel very special, so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so continue to put all of your questions and ritual abuse, um, gestures of love, whatever obscene comments you want to make, all, all are welcome, it's fine. So um, I'm currently obsessing over this map. Do you see this map? This map makes no fucking sense. This is the map that shows us um, the outcome of the election in terms of the red arrows are places that went more Republican and the blue arrows are places that went more Democrat in the last election. And in 2008, in 2012, the 2016 even, this map was pretty mostly red, mostly blue, like whatever the result was, was mostly that with some, you know, regional variations that were interesting. This one is just all over the place. Um, and it's just really hard to understand what to make of it. And I think one of the reasons it's particularly hard to understand what to make um, of, a, of a map like this in a year like this um, is that we don't have a lot of good information to understand. There are a lot of people out there who are already putting narratives behind the behind the election. You know, like we don't just vote and then everybody goes home and we have a result. No, we vote and then everybody has to like decide what it means. Um, but we're really struggling to decide what it means because A, everybody has their own kind of preconceived notion that they want to put out, but B, um, the exit polls this year are just useless. I mean, so far they're just useless. Um, we, we, we effectively have no solid information as of yet to work from because the two major exit polls that we have came out with wildly different information. Um, you know, so they just don't match up with each other. And of course, because it was an unusual voting year, we don't know which one to trust, what it all means, the polls were off. So we're slightly in the dark here. So I've been spending a little time trying to trying to figure out what it what it means. And I, I still have so many questions. Um, I'm still trying to work out a lot of things. So I thought for the purposes of this exercise, because you all kindly came here to listen to me um, think about these things out loud as I've been doing with my love, lovely audience for the past two years, I thought I'd you know, do the same thing, but do it with some visuals this time. So um, 
I want to narrow down and talk about one particular state um, for obvious reasons. So the craziness that we talked about in the country, the way the arrows go every which way, is especially so for the state of Georgia. And if you look at this, you can see some parts of the state went more red, some parts of the state went more blue. Um, and it, it's kind of like, let's try and unpack the pattern here. Let's try and understand what all of this means. Um, because of course, this woman, the, the, the patron saint of the state of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, has been doing heroic work effectively for the past two, two, two and a bit years. Um, and more than that, for, for many years. Um, organizing in the state of Georgia in particular and organizing voters all across the country um, to stand up against voter suppression, make their voices heard. Um, and I just wanna understand how effective was her work? Um, what worked, what didn't work? Why um, Georgia went blue for us this year, which is extraordinary and a, a, a fantastic result for the presidential race. Um, we now need to win two Senate seats there. Um, and we need to win two Senate seats that we didn't win the first time around. So we need to do even better. So let's try and understand what's going on with the state of Georgia and, and how the, the St. Stacey Abrams has been doing. Um, and it's worth thinking about that in it as always. Um, Jonathan, who I, I see you, you do political strategy. Um, there's always two questions, turnout, persuasion. Right? Um, it's treated as a trade-off. Are we doing turnout or are we doing persuasion? Well, we've always got to look at both and we've always got to do both. Um, you can never really pick and choose, although some elections might be more one thing than, or, or more another thing. Um, so I saw this article in the New York Times um, looking at uh, the, the black share of electorate in particular in Georgia. Now, of course, um, in particular, Stacey Abrams, many other groups have been doing heroic work trying to register and get black voters to the polls. But at least according to this data, um, pulled by Nate Cohn of the New York Times, he's a fantastic analyst. Um, it seemed that the black share of the electorate, although black vote had gone up because every vote went up because the um, there was a very high turnout election. It looked like what we were saying was that the black share of the electorate had gone down as a proportion, even though black voters overall had, 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 had improved their numbers. Um, because Republican turnout was also great, white voters perhaps increased their numbers by more than black voters. So I kind of saw that and I just felt, oh, that's kind of depressing because, um, a lot of good work went into getting black voters to the polls. And, and, and it's surprising to me that, that we couldn't at least, you know, slightly increase our performance over black voter performance over, over, let's say, you know, white voters in the same area. But I'm not really sure that this data is telling the whole story either. Um, it actually doesn't make sense when you think about it a little more. And remember the point that I made about there being lots of different data sources. So, um, I went down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what the heck is going on in Georgia. And one answer to that question, uh, and here's another data source um, coming up with some interesting information. One answer to that question is that the, 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 the black share of the vote didn't really go down in Georgia. Um, actually, a couple of other data sources have it going pretty much even. So about you know 30% and 30 of the, the vote in 2016, it was about 30% of the vote in 2020. Um, actually, the white share of vote went down. Um, almost every voter group and every, every demographic group, their vote went down. Um, you know, white, white vote went down from 65% of the electorate to 62% in this election. So what's going on? 
Well, I think there's a little clue here in the Asian slash other demographic, um, which went up significantly, increased by two points to 5%. And that's not entirely because lots of Asian voters voted, although they did vote in high numbers, but because just our data seems to be screwed up. <laughs> and actually there's a lot of um, voters that just, we don't have any racial led markers for. So, um, I, and, and now you have to ask yourself the question, how many of those are black voters? How many of those are white voters? But the simplistic story that we've been telling about the black share of the electorate didn't really go up, isn't quite that straightforward. So I went into writing this presentation very sure that I was gonna say that it was really disappointing that, you know, because the, even though we increased the number of black voters that the, that actually um, their share of the electorate didn't go up, but I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure anything is true. What is true? What is time? What does anything even mean? I don't know. Um, but I think it's just another way of saying we don't really know yet and we won't know for a little while um, how the electorate mapped out. But what about the persuasion piece? Um, how did our performance in terms of persuading voters to move to the Democratic Party as a, voters who previously voted Democrat or um, who previously voted third party, um, how did that go? And how did that go for Trump? Did Trump actually succeed in winning over any voters? Um, I have often talked about Donald Trump as a kind of base only candidate. Like he's somebody who only tries to win over, to, to get out the vote of his current base. Um, but actually did he have any success with persuading some voters to switch from having voted Democrat or third party to voting for him? Um, well, you know, the bottom line is in, in, in Georgia, um, the map that I showed you earlier, if you look at it on a county by county level, it, it's basically showing you that um, the areas that vote conservative went much more conservative. The areas that are liberal were much more democratic, um, almost in a kind of predictable manner. You could close your eyes and, and, and you know, guess where you think it might be. And, and you'd wind up with, yes, the urban areas for the most part went blue, blue-er, Republican areas went red-er. Everybody was more-er of what they were, right? Um, but actually, there's an except there's a big exception to that. Because look at Atlanta. Um, now Atlanta, the metro Atlanta is a huge proportion of the Georgia population. Um, and basically, this is why we won Atlanta, Georgia, was because of what we did in the in the Georgia suburbs. Look at that little ring around Georgia. Those are the Georgia suburbs, highly populated, um, new kind of very uh, um, emerging, trending um, suburban district, much more diverse um, than, than it had been even a few years ago. Um, and, you know, in a, from a persuasion point of view, we won over a lot of suburban voters this year. But look in the center there, central Atlanta, actually the, 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 the strongest, most African-American leaning population, very, very democratic leaning. So it's still something like 90% democratic voting, but if anything, they trended a little bit pink. Not, not necessarily more blue, um, more, more pink. So we did great in the suburbs, but from a persuasion point of view, um, didn't necessarily, um, in fact, went slightly backwards with that urban population. Why, why, what does it mean? What's going on with all this? Um, well, I think basically if you, if you break it down demographically as, as best we can tell, and again, all this information is kind of uh, notional at this moment, but we know that higher income people became more democratic. Um, I have to say, became more democratic, Donald Trump still won rich people. Like the Republican party is still the party of rich people. So we've won more of them. And that's partly to do with us doing better from an educational point of view. Um, but, but you know, 
Donald Trump is still the person who won the votes of people who made more than $100,000 a year. Like, let's be clear about that. But we've uh, we've done better in that category, which is great. We've done better in almost every category this year, except right there at the bottom. Teeny tiny shifts, itty bitty ones that if you add them up, add up to a lot. Um, in the counties that were more than 80% black and majority Hispanic, we went just a little bit down, just a little bit down, half a point down from, from uh, 2016 in the state of Georgia, um, which, you know, wasn't, it's not terrible. I mean, you'd still rather go down by a tiny little bit in terms of persuasion and increase the turnout because Democrat, because black voters vote Democrat 90 plus percent. So mathematically, you're still much better off by increasing turnout by 10%, even if you lose half a percent. So that's, that's fine, but it's, it's interesting. And it does make you go like, again, why, why is this happening? What's going on here? Um, why would African-American and Latino voters trend even slightly more towards Donald Trump? Um, and you might've heard this story before, but you know, it seems that uh, there is in general terms, speaking kind of very broadly, but in Georgia, this seems to hold true. Uh, young black men were a little bit more favorable towards Trump than, uh, than, than they had been in 2016. Um, and, and Latino voters were more favorable towards Trump than they were in 2016. Now, I can't begin to explain what's going on with Latino voters. I think it would be presumptuous for me to try. Um, but you know, in terms of African-American voters, I think one thing I would say is, oops, um, at least he tried. I mean, you know, Donald Trump it has definitely been working very hard to prevent African-American voters from enjoying their civil rights. But at the same time, he's been doing that. He's been doing lots of photo ops with black people basically. Um, and people, you know, condes sort of condescendingly, I hear a lot from, from, from democratic strategists and campaigners, people like myself, I've probably said it at some times that this is all about just gaining permission from, from white voters that like, it's okay that Donald Trump is racist. Um, you know, white, white voters who wanted to vote for Trump, the idea was to show pictures of him with black people so they would feel like I can vote for him, he's not truly racist. But I also think we say representation matters and we say Republicans, um, you know, need to make the effort to reach out to the communities, like if they want to, if they want to gain respect. So give Donald Trump the infinitesimally microscopically small amount of credit that he deserves for the fact that, like, he did actually understand that he needed to talk to black people visibly. Now he still hurt them in every way he could. He still took away their civil rights. But for a young black man who sees, you know, Kanye West, Little Wayne. Um, standing up who sees uh, black, lots of black facers at the uh, Republican National Convention, that stuff can have an impact every while. So, you know, the good news is that most of the Republican party is not Donald Trump and it's gonna be very different here out, but I think it's just a lesson to us all, like make the effort, show up, do stuff, be, be with the communities that you serve. Like it's amazing how far a little bit of representation can go even when you're a racist billionaire. Um, so the final thought that I leave you with is this was the high water, the high tide, right? This election was the high tide of electoral possibility. Um, huge turnout. We're, we're not going to get anything like this kind of turnout when the Georgia special election takes place. So as that tide recedes, the question is what's left on the beach? Um, how many of the voters that we were able to persuade to vote and that Donald Trump was able to persuade to vote uh, in, in November of this year will still be with us, will kind of be left behind as, the, as that giant tide waves, uh, tidal wave 
recedes back um, in 2021 in January. We need to win two Senate seats and it's really, really hard to see how we'll get there. Um, but we need to kind of, we need to pull the wave. We need to pull it right back, let the rest of the tide recede around us, but keep Democratic voters in the fold. Um, and I think that's doable, but it's not doable without one hell of a lot of work. Um, so there, that's that's what I've been obsessing over. <laughs> and uh, I would be very happy uh, to, to, to talk to you about it and answer any further questions that you might have about that. Emma, hi. Did I go too long with that? <laughs> No, you're not due to talk to me for another 10 minutes. So it's absolutely fine. We've Great. <laughs> we got more time to talk. Fabulous. Well, you know, you and I can talk for, well, both England and the United States. So. <laughs> we can talk for all the countries. Um, so I'm obviously here to talk to you about this whole roller coaster project that you've been on, that I've been with you for quite a lot of. <laughs> um, so obviously the, the first question is, you started off with primarily 2020 podcast all about the politics policies and personalities of the 2020 democratic primary <laughs> you're a great karen <laughs> i love your karen impression <laughs> um but why why uh you know you you have been involved and you, you know, you've been fascinated by politics for a long time but why this podcast why did you decide to go into it yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And it's like, honestly, it's one I ask myself all the time. Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? It's not like I don't have other stuff to do. I have a child and a job and I used to have a life. Yeah, we all used to have lives. <laughs> um, but I think the short answer to that is, um, I'm, as you say, I've been involved in democratic politics for a long time. And I've been involved, previously involved, mostly through the lens of doing a lot of work um, for Democrats abroad. Um, as an organizer, I was vice chair, you know, Inga Kemtrop, who's our current chair, is on this call. Hi, Inga. Um, and in the guise of doing that, one of the things I've often done is a lot of media. Um, so I've, I've been invited on, you know, on, uh, on behest of um, Democrats abroad. I've, uh, I've done lots of BBC, Sky, all kinds of stuff, just, you know, doing the party line. Um, but when it comes to the primary, there are certain things we can't say and do um, as the party, which is completely right. But I just, I just have more opinions than I felt I could express. No. <laughs> it's funny. I just, I, like, I have these opinions. They, like, waft out of me. Um, no, legitimately, I just felt that there was a really big conversation that we as a party needed to have um, that I think we didn't have in 2016. Um, and I think, you know, Marcella's on the call. You know, she was a big fan of, um, of Senator Sanders, as were lots of other people that I know. But I think his candidacy was really important in signaling to us that we, were just, we just weren't having a lot of conversations that needed to be had um, about policy, but also about politics and personalities. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, and I thought, you know, I want to make a space for that. That was my original thing for the podcast. I want to make a space for us to have that conversation between ourselves as Democrats, um, rather than like out there in the media world, right? Like I, I, I wanted to make a space for, for people who were within the party, friendly to the party, you know, wished it nothing but well, to have that conversation about like how, what's the right way to push for change? What's the right kind of change to push for? What is the world that we're envisioning? And so that's how I created it in the first place. 
And um, it was really interesting to follow the primary through that lens. And then, of course, when the when it ended, I was just about getting in my groove, right? I sort of like, oh, I've learned how to do this now. I, I want to carry on a bit. Um, but I, I, I think that it. I still think we haven't fully had the conversation we need to have. I don't think. I think Joe Biden is a great human being and will be a very good president. Um, but I think he thinks that he's not the final answer to our problems, that he's just a step on the journey. And I, I want us to, as a party, keep having that conversation. That's always the tension in any political party, isn't it? And you and I have just talked about this, about the Democrats and about the Labour Party. There are always going to be differences within the party about which direction it should go in, which policies it should pursue, whether it should be further to the left, whether it should be further to the centre. Um, I'm looking at the Bergens now because they and I have disagreed on this many times. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think we disagree as we, well. So we, with say, each other. we disagree with each other about the direction. <laughs> See, there's a conversation to be had. <laughs> but um, it's how you have that conversation, mm. isn't it? And that's where I feel like your podcast has been really valuable because you've had people on supporting each of the Democratic candidates and it's always been a respectful and interesting conversation. You didn't reveal who you were voting for until just before you voted. And then- Well, I literally didn't decide. You voted because you changed your mind overnight and I had to interview you. I did, it's true. Oh, I'm so hopeless. What's wrong with me? Funniest part was your husband shouting from upstairs, I knew you were gonna do that. <laughs> um, so there was never a point where I felt like you were trying to put your thumb on the scale, hmm. but it was about um, respectful conversation. Now, that can often be harder when you're in government. Um, in government, two things happen. One, you disappoint people, inevitably, because yeah. you can't get everything done that everybody wants to get done. And two, there's a sense that you're embattled, so you have to therefore circle the wagons, not say anything um, that's at all controversial. So how do you feel this conversation should happen going forward whilst in government? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think, so I think two things. I think first of all, um, I'll say three three ground rules I would, I would put in play, which is um, at the very beginning of the podcast at primarily 2020, I said, I said two things are the, the, the founding foundation stones of this, which is be not afraid um which i which i by which i just mean like don't worry necessarily that if you say the wrong thing like the world will come crashing down like we have to have these conversations right we have to like get them out and i think we can be a little bit you know in both ways you know we can be we can be too afraid of honest disagreement like it's it's good to have this conversation and it's good to you know be honest about what we believe and like i honestly think people in the parts of the country that we, where we don't win um they don't hear us expressing our honest beliefs very often and i think it's good to do that like even if they don't agree with us they need to know where we're coming from because there's a lot of you know in this identity led age where politics is so 
often divorced from kind of any, uh, people don't understand how the politics that we're advocating relates to their lives. We need to get in there and say that. So I think that has to be a part of it. Like we have to be brave and we have to be honest. Um, and I think, you know, Joe Biden, like will want us to be advocating to him, not just on behalf of democratic policies, but he wants to hear from activists. He wants to hear from, from voters, what they think, what they believe, what their priorities are. So I think we need to keep doing that um, both within and outside the democratic party. Um, run everywhere, which was the other watch out that I put in, like just literally every part of the country deserves, deserves good, good, good government, right? Even if they don't vote for Democrats, they, they deserve good government. And local government obsessive, so. <laughs> yeah, right? Like it's just, you know, make things work. Um, but then the final one is, is I, I think I would add what AOC had to say, which is not every disagreement has to be a fight. Um, and I think we get too precious about like either trying to shut down the points of view of people on either side that we that we disagree with or that we get threatened by. Like we think, oh, if we if we if if people hear you say the word socialism, um, you know, the walls will come the walls will come grassing down. Or equally, you know, people within Democratic Socialist Party, like if somebody wants to argue that Medicare for all is not the best way of delivering healthcare, like have the conversation. Don't don't accuse them of wanting people to die. Like have a policy debate. You need to do that. There are different ways of getting to the same solution, to the same outcome, or or maybe there aren't. Expl convince me why there aren't, you know? It's like, let's just have the conversation. Anyway. No, I think that's absolutely right. And it is, <clears throat> as you say, it's about having the conversation well, rather than avoiding the conversation. Yeah. I think too often we go to one extreme or the other. We either just go, well, we can't talk about this at all. Yeah. Therefore shut down all debate. And actually it doesn't shut down all debate because people still have questions in their head. They're just not allowed to voice them. Um, or you go to the other side of things where it's just like, as soon as you say something that isn't the orthodoxy, you are immediately out of the circle, no longer allowed in, in, in uh, and that's it, you forever, you're, you're gone. Yeah. And that's how we lose great talent. Um, and, and not just how we lose great talent, but how we lose the ability to win arguments. Yes. And I do wonder if this hyper-partisan moment is at least in part caused by the fact that we've all forgotten how to win arguments. Or even have an argument. Like, yeah. I don't think we have arguments anymore. We have disagreements and then we block each other. <laughs> right like it's okay to to not because to, because my point is for every human being who's ever changed their mind about something there was a moment before they changed their mind when they were on the other side from you and you don't get to win them over if you've shut them out um and you know equally like sometimes i change my mind you know sometimes people convince me that that i was wrong and you know, I want to feel good about that. I don't want to feel like I have failed in some way by changing my mind, but I want the person who's convinced me to welcome me in and be like, great. I mean, not to sound too soft lefty, which is blatantly why I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 I am baffled by people who just go along with an argument because the people they're friends with believe it, yeah. rather than interrogating it themselves and thinking, well, do I agree with that? Don't I agree with that? Yeah, I, I try to come. I mean, you know, it, we're all human. We're all slightly led by crowds. But I tr do try to come at each issue from a, well, what do I actually think about this? Yeah. I have some areas where I'm completely radical. I'm a unilateralist, for example. My one great lefty shibboleth is that I would abandon, uh, yeah, I would abandon our nuclear program tomorrow. Mm. Um, 
that's in part because I got taken to Greenham Common when I was eight years old, marching against new Yanks. <laughs> <laughs> Yanks go home, I was shouting at eight years old. <laughs> that's an interesting segue into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is you, you've been an American looking at America from a distance for some time now. How different a perspective do you think that gives you? So I think I, I have always said to people that I became much more patriotic after I left the country than I was when I was living in it. Um, just cause I think there's always a, there's always a, I don't know, not a nostalgia exactly, but you know, you look, you look with fresh eyes upon the things you leave behind. Right. Um, so, so I love my country. I am very clear eyed about its, about its issues. I, 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 I you know, I have a view, a view of patriotism that sees the potential rather than, you know, glossing over the, the reality, but there are like, I, I think what's changed for me over the years is I, I have always felt that it's a country full of really good people. And I used to have more faith in our systems than I do now. And I think that big change for me over the past few years, indeed, actually, even during much of the Obama administration has been a sort of scales falling from the eye about, wow, we are not set up to succeed as a country. Like we just, we are not built to, to effectively run ourselves as a, as a group of people. And that, worries me greatly and I also worry greatly about how intractable it seems and how impossible it seems to find a way out I like I feel like Cassandra you know like the the Greek myth of Cassandra like I can see it so clearly there's <laughs> we're stuck we're stuck in this really impossible place so I think that's been a big change for me I I used to have much more faith that the you know the U.S. Constitution for example was was fundamentally a sound system that needed some some tweaks and now I'm just I'm not even sure it's the right way to govern a country at all <laughs> you but, doesn't have a written constitution um and i was gonna say we seem to get along all right but the last not so much certainly <laughs> i mean take away brexit because let's not go down that rabbit hole this is not my conversation it's yours um but last year there was just the most extraordinary kind of rule breaking and norm breaking by our own what, what did donald trump call him england trump britain trump britain trump yeah i actually had an episode called that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i i and i i wonder whether this, do you think this biden moment this return to sort of civility old school do you see it as a start across the world or is this a is this the hiccup or was trump mm, great question um i guess we'll find out right um, because you could have, you could have asked the same question about Obama, right? Like you could have said about Obama, well, is he the beginning of a new, um, a new, you know, the new diverse world order of you know, a, a, you know, a, a kind of open internationalist, um, you know, multi multicultural diverse leadership? And the answer was no, <laughs> it was not. Turned out to be. Um, so I, I would love to believe that that Joe Biden is the is the the, the signal um, for a change in the world, but I think there are, you know, the rise of right wing populism is happening everywhere. And to be clear, I don't see any sign that there is a similar left wing populism. Like, I have disagreements with a lot of people in, within the Democratic Party who are who argue to me, 
like in an appeal like and it's an appealing idea that 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 they believe it's just populism that's appealing to people right now and that the right has just happened to have done better like i don't agree because actually as far as i can see left-wing populism and right-wing populism are just not the same thing at all and there's a reason why we haven't seen socialist parties sweeping in around the world um there is a there is a sense of threat that people are responding to and and veering towards the right in ways that are scary um and i don't think i think joe biden is it joe biden is america saying whoa <laughs> hang on now um but what comes next i think he's bought us the space to ask the question what comes next but i don't think he himself is the answer to it yeah i think that's um certainly true but in which case, what needs to happen over the next four years? Well, probably, let's face it, two to three years, given that we'll then get into, if Biden's not going to run again, we'll get into another primary. <laughs> yeah, I could do primarily 2024. <laughs> Start that now. <laughs> With you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so what needs to happen? That's a great question. So um, I think, well, I think, first of all, I, I would I hope that Joe Biden will be able to do more than purely placehold because we have some crises. We have multiple um, in overlapping crises we have to sort out. And I think the next step to getting a better government for the country is going to be actually trying to solve some of those problems straight away. Um, climate change um, has been delayed for so long that in another era, I might have said, well, actually, we have to prioritize the the, the virus and, um, and and the economic calamity that we're currently undergoing. But we can't afford to delay climate change like a day, a month, a year, anything, because we've made it so, so problematic that if we don't turn around, I'm sure Marcella is going to want to talk about this some more um, as deputy head of climate. So we'll, we'll come on to that in the panel. But we have to tackle it. And I sort of was saying um, on Paul and, uh, Paul and Rachel's um, did an event where, that I spoke out a little while ago go i these so some of these problems can be the solutions to each other which is that we need to get people back to work asap joe biden understands that more than anyone on the in as well as anyone in the country at least um and reinventing our infrastructure to to see the the, the climate the needs of climate change um to reverse climate change is going to be a you know it's a great jobs program as much as as well as anything else but we need to do it in a way that's fair and equitable this is why i think the green new deal which you know was demonized by the right actually like was mostly adopted by, by the biden administration and now looks very centrist and very moderate and in the context of coming out of a global pandemic so i think the solution to how we convert voters to understanding the need for radical change is to start making some change and making it work well. It's the same with, you know, the Affordable Care Act spent years being demonized and loathed by the right. And now it's pretty popular because people use it. So we need to start doing stuff. But that's why it's so it's so frustrating because doing stuff requires the kind of collaboration and cooperation because we are so structurally disadvantaged that the kind of cooperation that used to be possible in American politics and now isn't. So governing in a polarized era, um, it, it's this chicken egg situation. Like you can't bring people along with you until they see that democratic governance can work, but you can't deliver democratic governance because the McConnell era Republican party understands that that's their biggest threat. So they block everything, hurt the country and don't care. 
So yeah, got to find a way through that. If anyone can do it, Joe Biden can, because that's, you know, he's, he's better at um, managing to remain constructive with people who don't want to be constructive with him than most politicians I know, but I'm not sure anyone can do it. Yeah, I'm not sure anyone can do it while Mitch McConnell's in charge. Um, yeah, Mitch McConnell is the problem. Um, so uh, if anybody knows anyone in Georgia, uh, please, please tell them to go and vote. Uh, I know this is absolutely nothing to do with me, but that's never stopped me being on your podcast and saying things like this. So. Yes, please <laughs> vote. not specifically true because climate change is going to affect us in Britain, but it has to happen in America. You know, it, it's yeah. essential. So, you know, while sometimes British people getting involved in American politics can be quite counterproductive, and I'm thinking about the um, exercise in 2004 in Ohio that is not widely, widely reviled. Um, equally, it's okay that I have opinions on it. I just need to not give them any money because that's illegal uh, <laughs> and not try to tell people in rural Pennsylvania what they should think. <laughs> Yeah, we want to be careful of that. <laughs> it's funny, East London's quite different from rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what about you? What's next for you? Great question. Uh, what's next for me? So as you know, I've talked about ending this podcast in January with the inauguration. And um, time. <laughs> <laughs> Something in there. Teach character. him how to say goodbye. <laughs> um. In me and Karen discussion, if we didn't fall into Hamilton at least once. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm getting all emotional because, of course, that was the song that they came and sang to Obama at the end of his uh, administration. Oh. Um, but yeah, I, I had said I'd end it in January. I think I do have some ideas for future projects that I want to do. Like I, I do, you know, also have a job that I do and be very 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 uh, energetic daughter <laughs> and a very energetic daughter yes i'm 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 doing voter uh, voter voter cultivation one voter at a time like raising one up from scratch to make her the future that i want oh my god if if your daughter isn't the future president i don't know who it is frankly <laughs> <laughs> well, she's a future she's a future something that will be amazing um so yeah so i have that but I, I do have an idea in mind for um a project that i you and i've talked about that i want to do which would be a podcast plus um but it would be a project around immigration um and we've talked about this before um just because i think um you know, you think about all the list of things that are on a democratic administration's um, uh, to-do list and, and, and comprehensive immigration reform is something that is long overdue. Um, I, I like, I think a, lo a lot of people found that as much as many things of the Trump administration horrified me, watching his approach to immig immigration was the thing that felt most painful on a personal level because I identify as an immigrant. Yeah. Um, we get the job done. <laughs> And, um, but I think that there's something really interesting about the blind spot that Americans have on immigration. We really only think of it as, I think this is true for, for British people too. Like every country thinks of immigration only as people coming into their country, not as their citizens going to other countries and what those systems look like. And I think there's, I wanna do a project exploring, I'm calling it in my head, American alien, um, but exploring the points of view of Americans who experience other immigration systems and looking through their eyes at the lens of like, what are the choices that other countries make that can inform American policy? So I just feel like 
there's something interesting in that, that I I want to work on, but it would be something I'd want to like do it properly. So, you know, um, you know, get, 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 get the right partners to work with me on it. I've got, you know, some really good people, lawyers and specialists that I'd want to talk to academics. So if any of you know anyone who wants to work with me on a, a project around, um, around kind of the human side of immigration um, from an international perspective, looking at all the different countries of the world, um, give me a shout because I want to get on that conversation before the Biden administration starts to take it up themselves. Fantastic. Oh, well, that sounds really, really interesting. And I look forward to listening. And, and as you know, I'm someone who very much wants to be an immigrant to America. I, I, yeah, I've, I've wanted to live in New York City certainly seriously since 2014. When New York, I, you can be a new man. The greatest city in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now we're just showing off. Yeah, just, 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 just. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I am. Um, I'm very thrilled. One day live um, in America. Um, it just doesn't feel possible right now. Um, even for me, a white middle class, masters educated person. Um, yeah. And I just, just feel like, well, if it's if if I know how many barriers there are in front of me, imagine how much more difficult it is for everybody else. Yeah. Um, so if any of the Americans would like to, I mean, either sex, because you can, do this, <laughs> uh, would like to marry me at any point, um, the chat's open. <laughs> well, come on, Emma, buy him a drink first. I, I might buy them a drink, you know, I'm, I'm not that easy. <laughs> <laughs> she lies. <laughs> I was going to say, pretty easy. <laughs> Thanks, Karen. <laughs> Just saying. On that note, I'm going <laughs> to ask you first, and then I'm going to bring in our other panellists. Um, Karen, what are you thankful for? Oh my goodness. So it's been, um, I know it's a huge cliche. Obviously everyone would say 2020 has been a year of that's been hard. And so for all of the things that were hard about it um, on a personal, so there's a personal level and there's an electoral level. I'll quickly answer the personal one and then I'll do the, I, I have an electoral gratitude. Um, but from a personal point of view, I'm so lucky for my ridiculous daughter and my lovely husband and, you know, we're okay. Like we're healthy, um, we're, you know, we're fine. And that's so fortunate. And I don't take any of it for granted for a second. Um, from an electoral point of view, I've been thinking a lot about, this is gonna sound really nerdy, but I'm very grateful for our distributed system of delivering the election. What I mean is I've always felt kind of uncomfortable about the fact that we do have wildly different electoral systems in each state and it's administered by these local people on the ground. But I'm, I see now, I think a lot of us see now, the value of that is that it makes our democracy stronger because it's not like the number of different people that you would need to corrupt in order to effectively steal an election is just enormous. And I sort of think, you know, for all that I've been saying, I find the the structure of American democracy is so broken. It was just really nice to see one thing where I go, oh, okay, I see why we do it that way. That part of the system makes sense. Yeah, it, 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 that's good. I'm grateful that somebody, you know, whether by accident or by design, we, we, we managed to, to structure the delivery of an election in a way that's, that's actually not that bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, there was a lot that was broken about this election, but but that part worked. Great, thank you so much. Karen, thank you for that fabulous chat. Can't wait to see the next project, uh, listen to the next project. Um, 
I'm going to bring in the other panelists now, but do you have a final word that you'd like just in this section, just anything that I haven't asked you that you wanted to say? Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to say is just like to say thanks to everyone. Like I'm really touched that any of you are here. I don't know why. I, I, I love that people listen to what I have to say about anything ever. And it just makes me really happy. So thank you. Fantastic. Well, and, and it's a great podcast, even when I'm on it. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we all really, really enjoy it. And it's you know, so illuminating. And as someone who is such a geek about American politics, I always learn something from your podcast, which is fantastic. Right, so given that I have them both on screen, I'm going to go by alphabetical order. So Jonathan, Jonathan Cox is a communications uh, strategist specialising in issuing and positioning campaigns for candidates. Um, so Jonathan, hi. Hi there. Um, so first of all, what are you grateful for? Oh God, I mean, <laughs> I think we have to start with the Biden win, right? Uh, I am the past four years living in the United States, uh, probably true living everywhere. I think there's a Trump effect the, the, the world over. Um, we've been laboring under Trump derangement syndrome. The anxiety level, the, 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 the stress is everywhere. The anger is everywhere. And Joe Biden brings a calm. He brings a calm to me, to my family, to the streets. Um, you know, there was something that happened the, the moment that he was declared uh, the winner here in, here in Brooklyn. Um, and it happened, I, th I think, in cities and towns all across the US and, and, and probably plenty of places around the world. But everyone went rushing out into the streets, uh, euphoric, popping champagne bottles. I, I mean, it was it, it, dancing in the streets. People, they couldn't hug each other because of COVID, but the, there, was, there was just, love everywhere but one in particular thing struck me and that was that I saw people wrapping themselves in an American flag and I felt like the flag has been captured for the past four years and we got it back because when I saw the American flag as a patriot and as a partisan it created dissonance during the Trump era and just to see people wrap the flag around them, it sent a different message and it sent a different feeling. And so I'm grateful for a return to normal. Fascinating, because it actually mirrors a conversation I had with Karen just yesterday about the flag and how much the flag is a part of American culture on either side. It's not really a partisan thing. Whereas in the UK, you don't, you don't see the flag that much. Mm. You know, the, the Union Jack is not everywhere. The Union flag, sorry, it's a Union Jack on a ship. <laughs> so annoying. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a strange thing. The 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 flag, it's a symbol, right? And um, and it became, in my mind, it became partisan mm, mm, uh, in the Reagan era when Republicans started putting a, a, an American flag on the on their lapel. And it was an indicator of, you know, uh, wearing wearing your patriotism on your lapel. And if you weren't wearing one, then what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. And 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 it was and 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 the Republicans tried to own the flag. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 so it's good to have it back. The British left have a very complicated relationship with patriotism, which I think is a lot to do with having previously been an empire, uh, colonialism, all of these things. Yeah. Um, 
And so there's a there's a strong strand on the British left which refuses patriotism. But for me, I don't think there's anything more patriotic than wanting to improve your country. And really, what is politics but wanting to improve your country? <laughs> um, well, and 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 why should we let someone else define our patriotism? Right. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Agree with you. Um, so I'm going to move on to Marcella. Uh, Marcella Mulholland is Deputy Director for Climate at Data for Progress, uh, which is a fantastic organisation. Two things I really like, data and progress. <laughs> yeah, bring them together and you've got me, Marcella. <laughs> Same. Uh, so, what are you grateful for? And I'm afraid that Biden is, the, the win is taken. <laughs> Hang on, can we, just, can we just ask Marcella to show everyone the ocean behind her? Uh, Marcella is, is in Key West, is that right? Yes, I am, here. Look at that. Here it is. Oh, it kills me. Great swing state of Florida. Um, but I'm grateful for so much this year. Um, I think top of mind is that my family and friends are healthy. Um, it's been a scary year. So I'm grateful um, for everyone's health. Um, I'm also thankful for the millions of people who took to the streets this summer as part of the Black Lives Matter uprisings. I think that was a timely and much needed uh, reckoning for our country. So, yeah. Lovely, thank you very much. And you're, you um, indicated earlier that you were a Bernie supporter. Um, and it seems to me, certainly from the outside, that there's been a lot more outreach between Bernie and Biden than there was between Bernie and Clinton. Um, and a lot more, and at least before the election, I know there's been a slight kind of tension post-election. What do you think worked better there? and What could be taken forward from that? Yeah, I think um, Biden and Sanders uh, worked together quite well after the primary. Um, it was definitely a, a, a intense primary fight in which I obviously felt strongly on one side, but I think um, the scale of the threat of a, a second Trump term really brought people together. And personally, as someone who, um, identifies probably first and foremost as a progressive over a Democrat or with any particular party affiliation. I think it was really clear that for there to be any uh, political possibility for progressive policy moving forward, we needed to defeat Trump. And I think that was clear to Senator Sanders as well. Um, I was in college during the 2016 election, so I wasn't paying as close attention as I am now. So I can't speak specifically to the dynamics between Hillary and Bernie, but I, I think as far as I know, Biden and Bernie have some sort of personal relationship. And again, uh, the threat of Trump, I think really brought people together and there was some hopeful movement made with the, Siden, uh, the Sanders and Biden task forces, specifically with climate policy. They proposed some really ambitious plans and there were folks like John Kerry and AOC on those task forces. So I think it's a promising sign that progressives will be able to work with uh, the Biden administration moving forward. Fantastic. Um, and we're in a difficult spot. Um, it's quite possible that we won't control, I, I love saying we even do <laughs> <despite> <laughs> of, from East London, <laughs> never lived in America and don't get to vote and just have to claw my hands in every time I get a fundraising email, which is about three times a day. <laughs> um, but we, we may well not control the Senate, which will make things a lot harder to get stuff done. So 
I mean, I'm guessing from your job title that the, the key thing that you want to see the administration focus on is climate change. Um, do you agree with Karen that that's actually something that can do all three jobs that need to be done at the moment in terms of rebuilding uh, and rebalancing the economy? Yeah, I think so. I, I work on climate change policy, but I'm obviously concerned about all of the many crises we face. Um, I think something that's been particularly exciting about how the Biden uh, transition team and campaign have framed climate policy is um, by rejecting the idea that climate is some sort of separate issue that should be addressed uh, in the long laundry list of policy priorities and rather seeing tackling the climate crisis as an opportunity to jumpstart our economy and to rebuild in a way that is more equitable and prioritizes frontline communities that have been experiencing the impacts of poverty and pollution and also disproportionately the impacts of the pandemic. So I'm hopeful that uh, Biden's approach to climate will be different and more ambitious than pri prior Democratic administrations, just in the sense of uh, acknowledging that we can address climate change and create millions of good jobs for people across the country. Um, and obviously the Senate uh, is a cause for great cynicism, <laughs> um, but uh, all, going all in for Georgia, hopefully those seats uh, flip blue. And also there is pretty significant uh, executive branch authority that Biden has over this issue that, um, you know, there's a lot to be done just using the executive branch on climate. So that makes me hopeful. Great, lovely, thank you. Um, Eric, are you there? I can't see you. I'm here. Hi. <laughs> I'm back. There we are. There you are. Um, so uh, I'm afraid you're last, but not oh. least. Um, well. But that means that you don't get all the other interesting answers of what you're grateful for. <laughs> you have to be grateful for uh, baked beans. Yeah, God, no baked beans in the house, thankfully. We've stockpiled on many things through the various lockdowns, but no baked beans. But you know, you um, know that you could not be more wrong about baked beans and that they are God's own food. Let's agree to disagree on that. I don't want to, there's such love and warmth in this conversation <laughs> that we've had so far. I don't want to bring everything down. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, Thanksgiving, I've, I've never been one of those uh, expats that's, uh, you know, it's like we're here, even though we're both from the US, it's like, ah, it, I have to remember to call home and good, but it is, it is the American holiday. I mean, I miss that um, because it, it, I think for me, even more than Christmas, um, it was the day where the family comes together because it's every, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter what religion you are or faith or whether you're not religious. Um, Thanksgiving was, was the best for that. And it was a four day weekend for most events. So that's an advantage as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, family wise, thankfully, my sister was debating about whether or not to fly from Missouri to uh, near Seattle, where my brothers are, and she's seven months pregnant, and she wanted to see them. She hasn't seen them forever, and she, you know, she decided not to go. And so I'm very thankful for that. Um, but politically, yeah, I mean, I'm thankful for this moment uh, for the U.S. because it's that kind of thing where I can literally wake up in the morning and not think, oh, I have to look at my phone to see what's happened. And I can, I can just not look at my, I can wake up and think I can go back to sleep. And I know that the president of the, the future president, I say, you know, he, the, the days are numbered where you can have a leader of the US who's undermining the fundamentals of the US democracy. And, you know, there's gonna be some bad, Trump is going to do some awful things in the next 50 days. It will not end pretty, um, but he is on the way out. And um, so I'm very, very thankful for that. Fantastic. 
Now, one of the things I like most about the fact that we're all on Zoom now is that we all get to see each other's taste and interests and decor. Uh, <laughs> I am very interested in something that's appearing over your left shoulder there. Uh, what is that that you've got printed out on your filing cabinet? Oh yeah, I was I was blocked by um, Donald Trump uh, at one stage, and um, I was lucky enough to be part of the lawsuit. Uh, I wasn't part of the lawsuit, but I was part of the repercussions of the lawsuit. Um, that it was found that Trump uh, was sued by a group of people who said that they he's denied access to our freedom of expression because he was using his tw personal Twitter feed for official. Um, presidential declarations. And so it was a group called Knight Columbia or Knights Columbia, I always say it wrong. Um, and a woman named uh, Holly O'Reilly Figueroa. And um, there were seven or eight people on their initial lawsuit. They won in court. And then because of that, they opened it up and said, if you give us your name, we will submit your name to the justice department and we will force Donald Trump to unblock you. So I was blocked by the president. But there was my I've got the copy of the letter that was sent to the Justice Department to say that he can't do it anymore. So and then after January 20th, I can block him. This is it. Um, Alistair Campbell, who is fairly well known to um, British audiences. He was Tony Blair's chief of communications um, probably the best known spin doctor in the UK. Um, said he just unfollowed Donald Trump. And I'm like, why? It's just getting fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can't, we can't, I mean, he, we, we have to stay on what he's doing because uh, he's still attacking the fun. I mean, that's, it's just, it is a gut punch every time you see the sitting president of the US attack um, the, the, what makes democracies like the UK and the, you know, the, tr the peaceful transfer of power is so hard to fathom as such a significant foundation of our lives. And there are, and Republicans, not just Trump now, it is Republicans who are attacking that basic foundation. And that is something they should never be forgiven for. And that's, that. I'm talking about the politicians now. The people, I think there's conversations that need to be had, but the politicians themselves, we can't forget this. No, I, 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 I mean, I think that, um... Republicans are reaping what they've been sowing for a really long time. And, and yeah. I, I've been thinking about this, you know, Trump didn't come from nowhere. No. Um, for me, I think it probably started, probably Iran-Contra was kind of the, a lot of the, mm. the seeds were sown, but I think yeah. particularly in Congress, it was Newt Gingrich, wasn't it? Um, Definitely. That early nineties, just complete um, obstruction as a, as a strategy rather than just um, because you believe that something shouldn't happen. Yeah, uh, I, I think that you can train, you, you start with there and then that leads eventually to the Tea Party um, and then and that goes from there. And, uh, you know, an embrace the, the, I mean, every side has rhetoric. There's no question about that. But because of our, because of the weakness as Democrats that we genuinely want to govern, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is our strength, but also our weakness, we will tend to say, you know, things in hyperbole, but then in the end, we're willing to make a deal because we don't want to see a, the country fall apart and we want to get things done. Whereas the Republicans have no interest in government. Um, they don't, they believe government is the en enemy, so they can use the hyperbole. Then they can also undermine the foundations and the structure. That's why I think in the UK, in the US, you have such horrific uh, response to COVID-19. When you don't believe in science and you don't believe in government, well, no wonder they're they're, you know, I mean, they're one, shit at it. One of the most famous quotes from one of our leading politicians is we've had enough of experts. Well, I don't yeah. have this year. And the way that we're all cheering on 
the, uh, the, the vaccine scientist clearly shows that we haven't had enough. And, and the fact that the actual face of the pandemic response in this country wasn't the prime minister, it was the chief scientist. Yeah. Uh, and the same in the US, you know, the people they, the person they trust is not Donald Trump. It's, it's, um, oh, Fauci. Dr. Fauci, yeah. Um, right, so I'm going to horribly abuse my position as chair and tell you what I'm grateful for. <laughs> um, Yay. And I think it's, it's, it's a combination of things. I live on my own, which has been really tough this year. Um, and I wouldn't have got through unless I had wonderful people like Karen, um, and Ian, who's in the audience, thank you, Ian, who um, makes me watch terrible, terrible film at least once a week um, <laughs> and laugh about it. Um, so I think what I'm grateful for is human connection. And I think so many times we lose that. We lose that in our factionalism. We lose that in our partisanship. We lose that on social media. So I think it's really, really important that we take a step back every now and again and remind ourselves that human connection is actually the only thing that matters. Um, and ultimately, that's why we want to solve the climate crisis. That's why we want to um, have a $15 minimum wage. It's why we want to have a health service that works because we care about people uh, and each other. So I'm gonna open this up to the floor now. Um, so Paddy, have you got questions from the audience? We do, we've had a wide variety of questions coming in. I'm gonna apologize in advance for anyone that I uh, misconstrue. And if I have totally got the wrong end of the stick with your question, please please heckle, please come off mute and shout abuse at me. It wouldn't be the first time that this happened on a Zoom call. Um, I think that one of the first ones I wanted to ask, Mark um, has been fantastic with questions coming in. Does the Biden, um, does a Biden win represent a reaction to the policy of Trump or do we think to the personality of Trump? Mm. Great question. Who would like to take a first stab at answering that? Jonathan, I'm wondering if you have a thought. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you might. I do. I, I think it's a great question. Uh, look, I think um, uh, Trump, this election was all about Trump. It wasn't about policy. Right. And um, uh, I was talking about this actually with a with a guest on on my podcast on Mind of State uh, last week, where th this was not a referendum on climate. It was not a referendum on the economy. It was not a referendum on COVID. It was Trump. It was all about Trump. And so I believe that voters were rejecting the Trump clown show, not the Trump policy. In fact, I, I, I'm hard pressed actually to identify Trump policy. I don't think that he's a policy president. He governs from uh, from moment to moment uh, in this sort of uh, uh, attention deficit, uh, you know, response um, and anger screed. And so I, I I don't think that the American electorate was rejecting Trump as policy. I think they were rejecting Trumpism as his personality uh, and the effect that he's had on the country. Even those who voted for him. Um, I think we're just exhausted by him. And they might have thought to themselves, you know, it was worth a, it was worth a try. It was worth a roll of the dice. Let's try something different. And then they just said, we tried, right? But let's get back to normal. I would also jump in this election cycle. We saw a pretty big distinction between voters' preferences in terms of policy and personality. We saw in a few different states that swung 
Trump, people voted on ballot initiatives that were progressive. So for instance, in Florida, over 60% of voters supported increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And at the same time, the state swung more to Trump than it did in 2016. And in other red states like South Dakota, we saw people voting for marijuana legalization. So I think Democrats are in this really moment of crisis as a party where the policies that we stand for are often very popular across the board, but people either don't like the personality of our electeds or our candidates that we're putting up or don't associate these policies with the party. Um, so I think that's going to be kind of an issue moving forward and speaks to kind of how policy and, and personality are, are, are very separate. But I think, I think even the, 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 the variance between the presidential election and the down ballot races demonstrates that people voted against Trump mm -hmm. and then they voted for Republicans down ticket. And so it was not a policy rejection. It was a personal rejection and Trump should feel it personally. I hope actually he does. I'm sure he does. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. And I, I you know, I'd, I'd love to, you know, see Trump in pain because he's put us through it for four years. That, that speaks to a much bigger problem though, doesn't it? Because when it's not Trump we're fighting against, we're not winning the war of ideas. Yes. Can I just follow up? I, I'm curious, I wanna ask Marcella more about what she just said, which is um, you were talking about Florida and Florida I think is the, the kind of the perfect example of what you're talking about where democratic policies are really popular there, but Democrats have been doing, if anything, going backwards in that state. Now, I know you're from Florida. You were there at the moment. Um, what's going on there? Why are we struggling so much in a state uh, where we, we used to be able to win, but both in 2018 and in this election cycle, we underperformed our own expectations? Yeah, I think Florida is a microcosm for some of the trends. I'm sorry, there's a motorcycle going by me. No, 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 it's a big ocean wave. Um, yes, um, Florida's a microcosm for a trend we saw across the country, which is that Republicans and Trump specifically are making pretty significant inroads with Latino voters. So for instance, Miami-Dade County, which is one of the uh, traditionally and historically one of the heaviest Democratic counties in the whole state of Florida, which usually swings to Democrats by double digits. So for instance, uh, Hillary won Miami-Dade by plus 30 in 2016, and Democrats really uh, ramping up the margins in these counties is what lets them win a state like Florida. And this is a county with really heavy Latino population. And this year it's still swung for Biden, but um, Trump was able to, to decrease the margin of victory to just plus seven. So that's, that's 20 points of difference. And it really speaks to some of these trends we're seeing across the country where Republicans are doing better with Latino and black voters, which uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive just because we've seen racial issues be such uh, at the forefront of the Trump administration and especially this summer with the Black Lives Matter uprisings, you would think that it would polarize uh, voters of color against Republicans, um, but that's just not the case. And it's uh, pretty concerning and I think a big problem for Democrats moving forward because I think the thought has been like as the country becomes less white, that will necessarily make gains for Democrats. And um, the data just doesn't support that. Uh, another example is Texas, where Democrats have been working hard to swing Texas blue. And obviously, the Latino voting bloc there 
is a huge factor in, in how the, the state swings. Um, but we saw a lot of Latino voters who uh, are traditionally Democratic voters and voted Democratic in 2016 uh, voting for Trump this time. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons why that is the case. But um, I would say the story in Florida is uh, one of the non-white voters going more Republican. And also to my point earlier, like Florida's a clusterfuck a little bit because we see progressive policies um, being popular. Like I mentioned, we voted to increase the minimum wage. In 2018, we voted to expand voting rights to over a million people across the state that had uh, criminal backgrounds. And still we're voting for uh, fascists like Trump and Ron DeSantis. So um, I think there's a problem of democratic branding in, in the state where people don't associate the, the policies that they're voting for in the ballot initiatives with the Democrats that are running uh, on those policies. Um, and addressing those moving forward will be key to the future of politics in Florida. Marcella, how do you explain how do you how do you explain the Hispanic vote going in the other way in Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, uh, California? Yeah, I think. Well, first of all, a problem is that Latino, like we talk about Latino voters as if they're a monolith, but there's obviously you know millions of Latinos from different countries and backgrounds. I think in Florida, there's a huge Cuban American population that is very socially conservative and also uh, more susceptible to fear mongering around ideas of socialism um, and kind of big government just because of their background. Um, but yeah, in, in Nevada and Arizona, we saw Latinos uh, turn out in, in huge numbers for Biden. So I think you can't talk about Latino voters as a monolith and have to be more specific uh, about that. And also the reality is, unfortunately, as someone who's a huge lib, like, unfortunately, there's a lot of cultural and social conservatism in this country that we still have to reckon with. I, I mean, I think that's, um, that's absolutely right. But there's also, I feel, sometimes there's a disconnect between who the Democrats present themselves as and what we think of as democratic pol policies and politics. Um, I'm wondering if this, because the same thing has happened in the UK, where we've become very middle class, well-educated, with a middle class educated city dwelling vote. Um, and that's similar in the US. Um, and partly it's, it's a result of the union movement being massively um, uh, weakened here. And I'm guessing the same thing has happened in, in the US as uh, with the same economic forces. So how do we get back to, I mean, AOC is a wonderful example, but we need 50, 100, 200 AOCs. <laughs> you know, that, that working class um, person making a really, really good, strong, progressive argument. Mm. You know, I mean, that union, you, the, the loss of unionism is a problem, I think, um, in in the UK, obviously, it's been it's declined. In America, it never really was as powerful as it should have been in the first place. I would argue, um, like I think unions used to have more power; they used to um, be more influential. But I think I think the decline of unionism is an example of a wider problem that I feel Democrats are experiencing, um, in particular in America, which is just a lack of social cohesion of all kinds. Um, there's unionism is one of the ways that people used to come together um, in ways that intersected across geography and across like ideology. Um, and other ways used to be, you know, religion, you know, you could meet everybody in church. Um, 
and there were other secular institutions that people had. We don't meet people very often anymore that we share a sense of solidarity with outside of our own bubbles. Um, and that's increased geographically. So geographically, Americans are more sorted by um, kind of say, same homogeneity than they ever have been. Um, and we are not now creating things like unionism and solidarity and institutional structures um, that bring people together artificially. Um, and I just feel that that's, that's a problem on both sides of our political culture. Um, it's radicalizing both sides of our political culture along an axis that makes it difficult for us to create consensus. And I think that ultimately it favors Republicans more than Democrats, because as we were saying earlier, um, first of all, like the power for the people who are already powerful want to prevent those who are less powerful from unionizing or organizing in any way, creating solidarity. The people who are currently powerful in this country, in our country, are the people who are wealthy and politically uh, benefit from an, a, a, a badly structured political system. So, you know, that's not great. Um, what is going to replace it, though? That's my big question. Like, I feel like it's, it's not realistic to expect that what we used to think of as the union movement in its same form will restore itself. But I do think that a voice for workers and a collection of political power, like institutions designed to accrue political power to the less currently powerful are needed. Um, and I think will be called for, but I, th I don't think we've got there yet. Um, and I think that so, and I think the other thing that I would say is it's a, it's a real kind of personal bugbear of mine is like, we need to like show up in these places. Like we need to show up outside of election cycles and frankly, outside of politics. Like we need social clubs and like community fundraisers and school groups. And like, we need to, you know, as people who care about organizing together, we need to show up not just to ask for people's vote, but like to be a part of their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And we're not, you know, and I say, when I say we're not, I mean, like, we're all not like, no, nobody, you know, people are so disconnected from each other. And that, to me, that is part of the trend that is causing the polarization that's making our politics so broken. Anyway, end of rant. <laughs> Thank you very much for that rant. Paddy, uh, let's get another question from the audience. I'm going to take us up to 9.45 and then of course we will end the way we always end. <laughs> <laughs> I do, that's an excellent plan. Um, I want to turn to a question that Tom posted earlier um, and I want to talk a little bit about the Georgia runoffs. Uh, Tom's question was what effect um, do you think that Trump's talk of rigged elections and generally Trump's interference will have on the Georgia runoff? Who wants to come in first on that? Marcella? Eric, you unmuted. Were you going to say something? Yeah, I think um, Eric put his hand up. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's going to be, uh, Marcella's there in the U.S., so she probably has a better sense and borders Georgia, um, so um, has a better idea of what's going on. But it, yeah, it's 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 huge. I mean, if, if the Democrats can hold on to one of those seats, that will change the political dynamic of how Biden governs for the next, at least until the midterms, because that's really what matters in any presidential um, term is the first two years before those midterms. And then we face the dynamic of, can we keep the House and, and the Senate? Um, 
races that are up for, because not all of the Senate goes up every four years. So you've got about a third of the Senate every two years um, that will be up for election, I think is generally the way it works out. Um, and the Democratic calculation is better for us in um, 2022. But you know, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate, they do not believe in governance. They believe in just obstructionism. So if Georgia holds those two seats, then you know, then the what Biden can put forward will fundamentally change. And keeping the progressives on board, like Marcella and the Bernie guys and the gang there, is going to be really tricky because if they get disenfranchised, because Biden has to shift, you know, into the center just to get anything done, then will people lose the faith for 2022? And then and then we're in real trouble. So there's an opportunity there that all hinges on Georgia. And you want to think. You know, will the Democrats come out and vote in a non-presidential campaign? And that's a weakness of Democrats historically. So that's, I guess that's the significance that I see from Georgia. But I'd love to, I'd love to push you on that slightly and say, mm. you know, obviously the significance of the elections we, we can see. Does, uh, do you, you know, if you're campaign managing Loeffler or Purdue and you wake up to find Trump has gone out and put a heavy endorsement in, what effect does that have? Are these guys looking for support from Trump? Are they looking for support from the main yeah. party? Like, how do we feel that, you know, he, I mean, that's what, what, to what extent will he continue to ex exert influence over what's going on? Well, that's, that's what's brilliant about, you know, and the media is reporting on this and then you never know if that's reality. Um, but what they're saying is that Trump is attacking the fundamental of the election result in Georgia. At the same time, they're trying to run another campaign in Georgia. So, you know, there's rumors that there are some people saying we should just sit this out on the Republican side. We should write in Trump's name for the for the Senate candidates. And you know, as a Democrat, I'm like, <laughs> go yeah, for it. You totally do morons. that. That's a great Jesus idea. Jesus Christ! Really I mean, register I mean, your protest. <laughs> when you look at what they did to themselves in Alabama, um, was it Alabama that was Doug? Um, Doug Jones, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans. I mean, all parties can do this occasionally, but Republicans are particularly good at it. Um, you know, uh, you should go for it, guys. Don't believe in election integrity if you don't want to. Um, but they've recounted Georgia two and a half times now. And, uh, you know, Trump keeps losing. So let's see that happen again. You know, if he comes, because I think he's scheduled to come next Saturday to Georgia and just spends the whole time attacking the Republican infrastructure of the state. I mean, that can't help them, whether it's enough to you know, take away what is structurally a disadvantage, I think from everything else, you know, the sitting senators have a structural advantage. So whether it's enough to chip away at that, I don't know, especially from two and a half, 3,000 miles away. I just think- yeah, Jordan. Sorry, Please. can I just jump in? So, cause I just think, and I'm not so sure that it doesn't help um, that, that Trump's shenanigans, malarkey, his, stuff i'm not sure it doesn't help the republicans um because donald trump is great at driving turnout for disaffected republican voters uh, or yeah. you know disaffected white working class voters who traditionally either traditionally vote republican or traditionally don't vote or traditionally vote whatever like he pulls them out that's why this election was such a record-breaking high turnout election um because both sides almost maximized their voting potential um, and so I don't, I don't know, like Donald Trump, I don't get it. You don't, none of us get it. Like we're not the target audience here, but I'm just, I'm wary of being so certain that, um, that his voters are going to be like, it's going to sound obnoxious, like even rational enough to think 
if the voting system is broken and my vote doesn't count, I won't vote. I don't think they're necessarily operating at that level. I think they're operating at the level of we'll show them, right? Mm. Like it's like if they if they feel if he cuz he's trying to make it feel like this is an us against them thing and if you're on my side, if you're one of us, then you've got to do your thing against them. I'm not sure how it plays out. Um, I think it's like what I said in my presentation, there's this high tide, right? The November election was a high tide. It's the most votes we're going to see for a long time in American politics, I expect. What's left when it recedes? I'm not sure. I think, you know, we'll find out in January. Um, but the question that I, that for me, is I feel good about the fact that we've spent the last few years building infrastructure in Georgia. We could have had no way of knowing that actually, as it turns out, um, control of the Senate was gonna hinge on, on Georgia. But luckily enough, just as with Doug Jones in Alabama, we were ready when the opportunity struck because we had a good candidate in Alabama, never expecting to win a Senate seat in Alabama, but because an opportunity opened up, we were able to take advantage of it. Because we've been organizing in Georgia for years now, because we've been taking it seriously, because we've been showing up in a place where Democrats aren't you know, traditionally showing up and doing the work and building infrastructure on the ground, you know, we'll, you know, we still are against the odds, but we have an opportunity here. And I think it just goes to show that like, as with all things, you make your own luck. And if you show up enough and, you know, have the courage to go in places where you're not necessarily welcome sooner or later, you know, you can strike it rich, strike luck. Go ahead, Jonathan. We've got a problem. Well, we've got a problem in Georgia and that um, uh, both Warnock and Ossoff are running against two candidates, mm. right? They're running against Loeffler and Purdue uh, as uh, Trump endorses, and they're running against uh, those who believe that divided government is a better way to go. Mm. So, so the Democratic voters who are going to come out and vote for Ossoff and Warnock, um, they've got to win not only each of their individual seats, but they've got to win the notion that balanced government is not as good as giving Biden free reign for the next for the next period. And I think that makes it very hard for the Democrats in Georgia in this special election. Abby, do you have a question that we can just ask that we'll have very short answers to? <laughs> oh, I now I do, but I'm not sure that everyone's going to like it. And I think I was saving this just in case something like short and spicy at the end, like a sort of like finisher would be useful. Go on, we can be spicy. But too, I'm, I'm very in favour of short and spicy. <laughs> I'm interested to see what you guys do with this. What, what's Trump's greatest achievement over the last four years? Okay, who wants to come in first? <laughs> None of you. <laughs> Karen. I'll, I'll come in. Um, I... I thought he did a not terrible job with criminal justice reform. Um, you know, there was a criminal justice reform bill. Um, it's so far not what's needed, but there were there were some small, um, you know, incremental things that he did as part of, by the way, a kind of growing consensus that, um, you know, that the 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 imprisonment system is is broken. So he did he was okay on some of that. Like I would want to go a lot further and do more, but he was he was explicitly trying 
to reach out to um, you know some African American voters. He's also been very racist against African American voters and you know horrific. But he did do one thing, kind of. I think he was lobbied by Kim Kardashian and all kinds of stuff. So you know, it's not the way I'd have done it. But um, you know, props to him, right? Like he didn't have to do that. And you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of like I always say, like you know, if you're gonna do something to win someone's vote, that's the right thing, but you're doing it for cross reasons, it doesn't matter if you're doing it for cross reasons, if you're still doing something that's, that's good, like, doesn't matter why, just, just, just do the thing I want. I have to warn you, Karen, my wife is uh, tuned into this in the, in the room next to me, who's halfway through a criminal justice master's at Rutgers. Oh, and as you, as you said, criminal justice reform, the, the sharp intake of breath. I thought, I thought we might have a gas leak. I don't know what. <laughs> it was like interference on my headphones. Tell you what, your wife can come on my next podcast and tell me why I'm wrong. Uh, Jonathan, what has Trump got right? Well, look, I mean, um, he has brought out more people into the political process mm -hmm. right now a lot of that is against him right it was he, but but he he brought politics from the realm of policy to the realm of pop culture and that's again i don't think that was his necessarily his intention but it's not a bad thing that more people are paying attention to politics and so i'll give him credit for having that effect Fantastic. Marcella. Um, I've been thinking really hard about this. I can come up with a great answer. Um, I think uh, he brought some needed clarity about the shortcomings of the Democratic Party, perhaps, just by running on uh, economic populist message that proved to be really resonant with a lot of voters across the country, I think prompted some uh, good reflection for Democrats. Mm. I don't know. It's hard for me to think of a good thing. <laughs> I said I'd remind you that before we started this, we agreed you could swear freely and yeah, you know, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tell me exactly what to do with that question if you think that's a better answer. <laughs> well, I thought I'd come to our comedian last. Um, what has Trump done well, Eric? <laughs> well, should I start swearing now? Fuck's sake. Um, I mean, I think the, my, my <laughs> I mean. The three of you have chosen, I think, the only good three things that you can do. Um, uh, I mean, he's made us realize what what a weird man Mike Pence is. I mean, there are some deep issues there. I mean, not to get into the issues with Mother, um, his wife, um, but the way that he looks at Trump is just, I mean, he's creepy. It's strange. And he's Mike Pence is never going to be the nominee for president. He's never going to be president. But if he thinks this is what's going to make him president, making sure that I guess so that's not something Donald Trump has given us. But yeah, I mean, any of the positive things I can say about him would be criticisms. He's destroyed the Republican Party. Um, he's he's shown us where the racists and the fascists are. Um, yeah, it's hard. To, I mean, Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, whilst he was sick with COVID, was tweeting that America is not a democracy. Mm. That's what Republicans are, that's where the Republican Party is at. Not the, not the voters, but the party is at the stage where they don't care about democracy anymore. And Trump has shown us that that is the truth. Mm. So thanks. Thanks for showing us that. Hey, Eric, can I ask you a quick question? It's probably of not course. a question. I'm curious, as a professional comedian, Donald Trump 
is the most ridiculous human being in the world. Does it make it harder to do comedy when the president defies parody? Yes, I think so. I mean, A, it's exhausting after a while. And then, you know, it depends on what people want to hear and everything else. I mean, luckily, you know, as an American, you know, British people are interested. Everyone knows about American politics. Yeah. I couldn't be a British comedian in America doing a lot of jokes about Boris Johnson because you might know who he is, but, you know, you don't give a shit. Um, so luckily he's a global figure, but, you know, would I trade, um, you know, the sense of the American democracy for somebody who's, I mean, Biden is going to be very difficult to satirize. Mm. I mean, he's, you know, because he's going to be governing, yeah, which, which is fine. I'm happy to <laughs> lose that. And I'll do jokes about crisps and potato chips. And we will be here for it. And fries. <laughs> Uh, and I think we both know what, what went through Karen and my head when you said that Mike Pence is never going to be president. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. I mean, I don't know. I, do, I mean, I don't really think the Republican roster going into twin. This is a whole different conversation. It's, it, beyond Trump, it's not a very deep pool. Um, so that's why he won in the first place. I mean, the people he ran against in that primary. I'm going to say the most controversial thing, I think, because I'm actually going to answer the question from the perspective of, if I were Trump, what would I think I'd done well? And Trump has taken over the Republican Party and he's changed it fundamentally. It was, as we've discussed, there's their long-term trends in the way that the Republicans have behaved, that Mitch McConnell is the, the end goal of in many ways. But Trumpism was new for uh, the Republicans, certainly as a mainstream part of Republicanism. And he has swallowed that party whole and he owns it now. Um, and whoever, the reason that all of the senators and all of the party leaders are not standing up and going, you're fucking mental, you've lost the election, get the fuck out of the White House, let us get on with things. It, because they know that they need Trump's base to vote for them in the primaries. Um, and that's terrifying. But if I were Trump, that's what I would think I'd done well. Mm. And I, I'd be right. He has done that very, very well. It may not be a good thing, but he's done it very well. So Karen, 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 Karen. Right. It's time for the gut check game now. <laughs> Most of you have been on the podcast before on my panel, but for those who are unfamiliar, the gut check game is um, the time during the Democratically 2020 podcast where I usually take some little bits of paper, write down some quotes that we've heard from around the campaign trail, put them in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap, which I have to confess to all of you, just because we're among friends, I hope you won't be too terribly disappointed in me. I've been faking it the last couple of weeks because I can't find my hat. I'm so sorry, but never mind. I, st I still love the socks, but I can't find my baseball cap. Never mind. Um, but this time, and so we put it, we'll randomly draw uh, a quote out of the, out of the hat um, and uh, we just react to it. Um, now, so because we're doing a video session this time, for the first time I've got video as well as audio, I thought it would be fun to do a visual version of the gut check game. So I have in front of me some photographs from around the political world, and I'm gonna try and share them with you and we will react to them. So bear with me one sec. 
Let me get my slideshow. Are you releasing this as a podcast? If so, make sure you describe the photographs. <laughs> yeah, describe the photograph if you want to. Um, and bear with me a sec while I just get the right presentation up. Thanksgiving gut check game. Do, 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 do. Talk amongst yourselves. I'll be with you shortly. I just want to like stitch in a sort of very annoying 60 second ad for zip recruiter or some other like <laughs> online service that I've never heard of. Actually, while I get the presentation up, would oh, those of you who are podcasters in your own right like to plug your own podcasts because there are some great ones. Mm. Um, Eric, would you like to plug yours? Sure. Um, yeah, um, I'm fairly new to the podcasting game. Um, I've got nine episodes in, eight episodes in. Um, and yeah, mine's called American Exchange. And um, my focus is slightly different than Karen's angle in that I've been trying. It, it, the idea is, again, as an expat trying to reach across the pond to connect with people. I've talked to a lot of ex-Trump supporters uh, or ex-Republicans, Joe Walsh. I got the mooch. I got to talk to the mooch. Um, and uh, uh, I talked to Mary Trump amazingly. Mm. So um, yeah, so, uh, so different conversations, but again, trying to connect and find out what the fuck's going on in America. And Eric, what is what the fuck is going on in America? <laughs> well, I I can't tell. I mean, it's very difficult to say. But um, but I mean, the one the one Joe Walsh, who's a former Republican congressman, when he talked about why Republicans are moving away from Trump, I thought he said it's basically exhaustion. Yeah. So it's not that they've moved away from his policies; they were just tired of him. And I think that might have explained some of the ballot splitting that we saw with people just saying, "I'm going to vote for Biden, but I will vote for Republicans," which right. we haven't seen ballot splitting in America for a long time. Right. So yeah, check it out, American Exchange. So Karen, are you going to nominate people to? React? Yeah. So here's here's our first picture, and I think what we'll do is I'll pick someone to give their first reaction, and then that person can pick the person to react to the next one, and we'll just go as we go. So, Marcella, why don't you kick us off with this charming photograph? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't even really know what to say. It looks like a small desk. Uh, <laughs> Tiny little desk. Is he doing it to make his hands look big? <laughs> maybe maybe yeah um i don't know something trump has said that's kind of funny about climate change is that we want to give people tiny windows and i don't know about that but that's a tiny desk so. does it feel like he's got a bit of a thing about size like he's a little insecure i don't want to suggest why yeah, that maybe. might be but like just tiny little things i would agree with that <laughs> i think he's going back to kindergarten in january <laughs> To be honest, okay, he has some core life skills that he did not learn in kindergarten that he needs to pick up. So I genuinely think that would be a good move for him. I agree. Also, I did some digging into Baron Trump the other day because my friend sent me some of his artwork that was apparently leaked. Um, and Baron is like absurdly tall. He's like apparently like over six feet. Um, so that's just something to think about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Marcelo, would you like to nominate someone to kick off our next uh, reaction? Yes. Jonathan, you want to go next? Jonathan, queue up. Ready? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, Kamala's cornbread dressing. Well, look, I mean, uh, I, I don't have anything funny to say here, <laughs> but I, I feel like 
Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are bringing people back into the process. You know, they're, they're human, they're accessible, they're empathic, they're family minded. Um, they're, they're warm. Um, and the fact that the vice president elect uh, was sharing on Instagram uh, her, her prep for the holidays um, is consistent with who she's been as a candidate. And I believe it's consistent with the way that they are going to govern. It, when, 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 when Joe Biden introduced his, uh, his nominees and appointees for that first round of cabinet, it was striking that each of them came and told their personal story, right? This is about people and people are policy. And that's what I, so, so when I see Kamala's cornbread dressing, I think about people being policy. Yeah. I, um, I agree with that. I mean, Kamala, little, like little known fact, well, actually widely known fact, but in case you don't know it, Kamala is an amazing cook and she loves food. She loves to cook. And um, I kind of love that about her because I remember a generation of female politicians where they were like, you had to make a choice between, am I a person who bakes cookies or not? And Kamala is just like, I love to cook. It's not gendered. It's my passion. And I think that's great. Um, I have to say, Emma, I don't know if you'll be aware of this, but our our girl, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, um, she also posted a Thanksgiving food preparation um, Instagram uh, on Thanksgiving Day, but hers was less successful than Kamala's because she posted about burning her sweet potato pie. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you guys do, I mean, you guys torture food on Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. You put together are just insane. It is a marshmallow topped sweet potato casserole that she burned. <laughs> on nothing savory. I'm <laughs> putting that out there. You guys are insane. <laughs> uh, Jonathan, would you like to nominate someone to go next? Uh, sure, I think I think it has to be Eric. Off you go. Oh. <laughs> Before I comment on the photo, I will say that one of the, my mother's specialty for family holidays is something called green gluck. Um, which is um, sort of a jello, which you would call jelly. I don't even know what it is, but it was green and it was gooey, but um, kind of like, oh, I've got different, um, sorry, sorry. kind of like what was coming out of Rudy Giuliani's head. <laughs> I mean, luck. you know, there's been, I mean, I've watched all the late night commentary on this, you know, is it an oil leak? Is it the hair dye? Is it the brain substance? My theory is that he has COVID and it's literally trying to escape his body. <laughs> Um, not even COVID wants to be in Rudy Giuliani right now. Um, I mean, yeah, he said, I mean, it's a disaster. I mean, they lost today. Was it Wisconsin where they, they lost the court case or, or with the recount that they've asked for? Biden's gone up by 132 votes. Yeah. So that they right paid there. $3 million to lose 132 votes. I mean, if anything says a Trump investment, that does. So that's completely, that is well put. That is exactly how he spends his money. Yep. <laughs> Par for so, the course. Yeah, I don't understand what's happening. Like I genuinely, I actually have seriously considered for for a a, a recent podcast, I, I seriously considered getting a cosmetician on because I don't understand what is happening here. Like, sorry? The New York Times actually covered this and went to a various hairdressers and they say it's probably not hair dye because that wouldn't streak like that. That's what I'm thinking. Um, almost certainly coloring with mascara. Right. Um, his sideburns to make them the same color as his hair. And that's what's running. Yeah, I think it's the powder. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, you get that powder, the roots. Jesus. But not that I know anything about these things, because obviously this is my natural hair colour. <laughs> You're naturally magenta. But like, but why yeah. would you do that? Why, why, why would you do that? Why, like, why wouldn't you just die? Did everyone see when Trump did catch COVID? He came out in the hospital and he was like not orange. Yeah. He looked mm. normal, and I was like, "This looks better. <laughs> he looks like a person. I could, I can imagine this human, this creature living in the same universe as me." Um. So what is he like? I don't understand. Does he put on makeup to make himself orange? What is wrong with these men? Do they need lessons from the women in their lives? It feels like they do. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that 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 um, what's her face is actually going to teach anyone not to be orange. I mean, his wife is about as orange as, as he is. Plus, she hates him. Maybe he is getting lessons from her. <laughs> Maybe that's why. Eric, would you like to nominate someone to go next? Um, right. So I don't. Well, uh, uh, Emma, do you want to do one of these? Or you? Yeah. I don't know who, how the nomination works. Yes. Go for Emma, it. Go for it. Emma, do you know who these two people are? No. <laughs> good. Good one. So I can tell you that on the left is Georgia Democratic Senate candidate John Ossoff, and on the right is Georgia Democratic candidate 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 Raphael Warnock. So I have been to the guy on the right's church. When I was 21, I did a little tour of the States because I'm a total Americophile, as you may have gathered by now, and um, people who listen to the podcast regularly. Uh, and the bit of Atlanta, the, there were two things in at Atlanta that I really enjoyed doing. One was going to um, see all the Martin Luther King star, and the other was the world of Coca-Cola, which I think really encapsulates my depths there. <laughs> um, I just think, yeah, look at that photograph and then look at a Trump rally. These two guys are wearing their masks properly over their noses. Huge bugbear. Um, they're doing the elbow bump. And they're also, you know, look at the look on their faces. These guys are serious. They're really into it. They're, they're, they're out to win. Um, they've got this audience, but they're not, make, they're not taking the piss. And I just feel like the Republicans have taken the piss out of their own supporters. Sorry, that's not a phrase that Americans use, is it? Can you translate taking the piss? Because it doesn't sound like that to Americans. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, I mean, they're, 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 they're not taking them seriously. They're, they're, yeah. they're using them as props rather than, and, and, and putting their health in jeopardy. You saw that event a week or so before the election where people were just left stranded in the freezing cold. And you just think you are not taking your own supporters seriously. And how do you expect us then to think that you're going to take your, your mm. electorate seriously, the people that you're there to, to represent? So what I like about this photo, it's not the funniest photo. I can't tell the most jokes about it, which is a shame because I, I was hoping to compete with Eric a little bit, you know, stand, <laughs> stand um, but the intensity, the intention is so there. And that, I think, is what is needed, not just when there's a special election, not just when there's a general election, but going back to the stuff that we've been talking about, all that down ballot disappointment, that intensity needs to be there from dog catcher, from sheriff, right up to president. And we focus far too much on the presidential race at the detriment of all those other races where people make a genuine difference in people's lives. And you said it just right, Karen. You said we need to be in their lives all the time. Hmm. It shouldn't just be politics, you're right, but it does have to be politics too, because that's how we demonstrate it. So this photo for me is like, do that, but do that two yeah. weeks 
after the election. Yeah, and I think Raphael Warnock is a great example of that because as you say, he's a pastor in a church. So he understands about showing up in your community every day, every week, every Sunday, um, you know, and, and ministering to all their needs. Um, you know, not just the, yes, their political needs, but also their personal needs, their family needs, their concerns, their fears, their hopes, their aspirations. Like we gotta do more than just show up every four years and say, you know, healthcare reform, right? Like that's not that's not a way to reach people. Right, Emma, would you like to nominate someone to do the next? Uh, who hasn't done, you haven't done one. Oh, me, right. Yes, I'm here too. Oh, okay, well, so I get, <laughs> I, I, I get the one that this is the Obama cabinet. Uh, so Obama, gosh, can <laughs> is my Freudian slip showing? Yeah. Um, this is the Biden cabinet. Um, and I have to say, so I, I picked this picture, like there's people in here that I, you know, really admire, Janet Yellen, um, is going to be fantastic. Um, uh, treasury, uh, treasury Secretary, I love that that he appointed um, John Kerry. Not not just that it's John Kerry, but that he appointed a cabinet level position to um, climate change, uh, um, the management of climate change. I think that's fantastic. Um, so that's great. Um, just there's a lot of really good people here. Tony Blinken, I think, was widely predicted to be um, Secretary of State, um, and he's you know from what I've read, for everybody who said who's worked with him says he's very well respected um i just i just feel like this is a group of people who are like you were saying i think emma these are grown-ups and these are serious people who are dedicated to the jobs that they do expert at the jobs that they do um and you know like i always think about rick perry who was catapulted into the department of energy which he had previously called for abolishing even though he couldn't remember the name of it and when he became cabinet secretary for the department of energy did not seem to still know what it does now um you know these people the people in this picture every one of them is very good at the specific subject matter that they're called to do they take their jobs seriously they have experience in it and for me um it feels like they're going to walk into a White House um, on the 20th of January, 2021, and they're going to start to figure out, like, they're going to, like, th there's going to be, like, chicken bones lying around. There's <laughs> going to be, like, great big holes in the wall. Like, you know, there's going to be a smell coming from a cupboard in the back that nobody's going to, like, it's going to be a mess because there are huge swaths of the U.S. government that just have not been staffed for four years. Nobody's been doing anything. Um, and so these people are going to have to get moving really quickly to just make the government function again. And I feel good about the fact that they they can. Um, and also, I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name, but the woman on the bottom left, she has this brilliant speech that she's given about, um, about gumbo diplomacy, um, which I love so much. And she just talks about like getting people together around a big pot of gumbo. And I just think there should be more Creole in our foreign policy. So um, for that alone, you know, as a Louisiana native, she's 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 got my vote on the gumbo based thing. I mean, it's great to have serious people, but can I just ask, um, who's the guy on the top row, third from the left? That would be Jake Sullivan. Hey. We'll fix you up. <laughs> <laughs> Emma is single and looking to date slash marry. <laughs> Right. Um, so I should nominate someone. Uh, Patty, you haven't gone yet. Do you want to take the last one? Yeah, let's do it. This could go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a story behind this picture. Do you know any of that story? 
I don't know any of that story. I, I believe this is tied to Trump's policy to turn the US into a great naval power. <laughs> great naval power. So um, first of all, what's your first reaction? And then I'll tell you what's happening in this picture. Uh, well, what's my first reaction to this? That it's not the weirdest picture I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, man in a I, Trump. What I, what I imagine is that they're probably agreeing about whatever they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so what's happening here is that this police officer, this sheriff, is in the process of arresting this man um, because he spat on a uh, anti-Trump protester. Okay. Nice. So, yeah, he, yeah, that, so, so that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but, I, so I've, um, I, the thing I'm sort of taking from this, and forgive me for like indulge my like little wonder here, like. So I, we came to the US two years ago, we moved to New York a year ago, and it's been a, like a crazy year to have your first like year in New York City. And we spent Thanksgiving over the last couple of days um, upstate at my sister-in-law's like new house because they fled the city with their twin boys. And um, she works for the Atlantic um, and so has like a number of obviously like books that she's been given. And so I was like lounging around over Thanksgiving and picked up this book, which was like 150 years of Atlantic writing. And the thing that struck me was as you leaf through the essays the the headlines are almost kind of evergreen like a number of the issues that they're discussing are things that still plague us today that we're still like battling with today um so i sat there and read this like incredible uh essay that jfk gave as a speech on the death of robert frost yeah um and he was talking about like when when power corrupts poetry cleanses because art reestablishes like base human truths and like I think the thing I take from a picture like this is like you have Trump supporters spitting on anti-Trump supporters I, I am really intrigued to see what that like next chapter of healing looks like because I yeah. think my, my suspicion is that Biden will kind of get out of the way like most of the work is going to have to be done behind closed doors most of the work will have to be found in all those like strange subcommittees that most of us can't name where there is the possibility of bipartisan work. And I wonder, like, I really wonder what the outward kind of facing healing of these different divisions will look like. Cause I, my suspicion is that people can't stay this angry. And I think as you know, my, my dad is a, a old journalist and he keeps telling me that the thing with Trump is that the spotlight moves on quickly. And that once you've lost, even if you want to maintain a sort of front and center role, the media doesn't really allow it like losers are losers and the spotlight moves on so i look at this and sort of think like i wonder if I'll, i've got four-year-old nephews over here i wonder if one day i'll be explaining to them this kind of crazy period we went through and how things are stable again and then maybe by the time they reach my age we'll be back down i like i wonder how long the cycle is but leafing through this collection of essays convinced me that it's like everything's going to be okay because history is inevitably sort of secular that's yeah. probably too weird and deep and philosophical to leave it on but i can't otherwise comment on a man wearing an inflatable trump 100 <laughs> percent. i just want to read out the one of the comments from the chat box um which is ega our, our esteemed uk chair she just says boring sensible shoe government people getting their voices heard long meetings oversight sounds great <laughs> i'm so up <laughs> yeah. for that too absolutely like bring on the boring i i want that <laughs> so much listen guys um amazingly we're only five minutes over time um thank you so so much to all my panelists do you want to um say say a few final words before we sign off marcella why don't you go first 
Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having us. This was a pleasure. Um, I would say that folks should follow Data for Progress on Twitter for some of our latest polling and policy analysis on progressive issues. And yeah, I would just encourage everyone to stay engaged because an engaged citizenry is essential for the health of our democracy. And I will be out there uh, fighting with all of you. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, Emma? Uh, yeah, just uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me be a part of your podcast, despite having absolutely no right to be. <laughs> um, uh, and I swear to God, it's only because I live around the corner from you and work from home and worked from home before, <laughs> before everybody worked from home. So I was always available. <laughs> no, um, you, you're, you're a huge value to the podcast, Emma. But I, I enjoy it enormously and it lets me geek out over American politics, which is, uh, as you know, my, my big geek fest. Um, I am so grateful to the community that you've built around you. Um, it's one of the nicest podcasts. I mean, podcasts generally have nice communities that support them. So when I say it's one of the nicest communities, that's a really, really big compliment because actually yeah. Yeah, it's incredibly supportive and positive and interesting. And you have just the best guests except for me. Um, so thank you so much to everybody you know I live I only don't listen to the episodes that I'm on <laughs> <laughs> thank you Emma we love you Jonathan any Aaron, it's words? been it well it it's been a pleasure to join you um to be back uh we've met across Skype and Zoom and um and it's working the technology is working I look forward to um to the day when this pandemic is passed and we can actually meet in person. Mm. I love travel. I love the UK. I'd love to get back there. So to see you in person would be um, a, a wonderful thing. You have an and, open um, invitation anytime. Come, come crash at ours. Like you would be. And, <laughs> and, and, and in the meantime, um, I will plug uh, Mind of State once again. We're, we're on every other week. Uh, we, are the, we are where uh, politics and psychology meet. Um, and uh, we talk about politics in a decidedly different way than the pundits do. And so come join us at Mind of State. Thanks Great. again. Thank you. And um, Patty, do you want to um, give a shout out to your awesome news newsletter because the internet? Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, Karen, I just want to echo and amplify all of the thanks from the panel and everyone, I think, on this call for the work that you've done. You've certainly made it uh, easier for me to understand this country that I've come to live in, or this continent that I've come to live on. Um, I also write about culture and technology and weird stuff on the internet. So if anyone is interested, uh, because the internet.co.uk, you can sign up, it comes out. Karen will laugh. I'll say it comes out every two weeks and she'll be like, ish. <laughs> it comes out eventually occasionally it's there excellent well thank you so i i just want to say again i know i've said it before you guys are awesome um i love um the questions that i get for the podcast i love the feedback that i get like emma says i just have the nicest listeners in the whole world so i really appreciate all of you um and drop me a line on twitter um i'd love to hear from you did you think this format worked would you like to do more i will say one other thing we have a discord group that we are running um on an ongoing basis which patty is my uh co-moderator on that group as well if you've liked what you've heard tonight um there's a great conversation happening on the discord as well so um uh, go check that out um and uh, I think, Patty, maybe you can drop a link to that in the chat here as well. 
Um, so it only remains to say, uh, for me to say thank you to uh, Marcella Mulholland, um, thank you to Patty Collins, thank you to Emma Brunell, thank you to Jonathan Kopp, thank you to Eric McElroy, um, who unfortunately had to had to go off and be funny elsewhere instead of being funny here. Um, thanks to all of you for showing up tonight. I honestly wasn't sure if anyone would want to come when I decided to do a random uh, Zoom meeting. So I'm pleased that, that people did come and I, I appreciate you all. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR on Twitter, K-A-R-I-N-J-R. And if you go to my Twitter feed today, you will find that I have pinned to the top of my post um, a series of pictures so that you can see the pictures that we were talking about in the visual version of the Gut Check game. Um, if you are a Georgia voter um, or know a Georgia voter, don't forget that the uh, Georgia Senate race is coming up on January 5th. Um, it is not to be missed. Um, very, very important that everyone vote in that it is our last chance to hold the senate um so if you can't vote in that election um maybe think about giving money to one of the candidates or doing whatever you can to help um, as always it's great talking to you and i will speak to you next week mm -hmm.